Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. It has been a hot summer, to say the least, and not just because of the air temperature. Many, many thousands of acres of the Canadian boreal forest have been on fire this summer. And while that on its own isn't unusual, the scale of these fires certainly is. And the impact on humans has been noteworthy. It is officially Canada's worst fire season on record. It is not the first time that air quality has impacted densely populated parts of the continent, but it is the first time that we can remember it in the east. While the winds have blown the worst effects elsewhere, the fires have yet to abate. The question for us, of course, is what does this mean for birds? And unfortunately, it is hard to say. The boreal forest is mostly uninhabited, so we don't really get to see what it means for the continent's most important bird nursery until fall migration moves those birds southward and in front of our binoculars. Ecologist Andrew Sullivan, quoted in an article in Audubon published last month, makes a couple important disclaimers about these particular fires and their impacts. One being that the boreal forest is a fire-dependent ecosystem. It requires regular fire to open cones to create the habitat mosaic that can support dozens of bird species. And two, boreal breeding birds have a very broad range, typically. So even though these fires are historically large, the boreal forest is so massive that there are lots of places where the birds can go. That is, of course, the rub of all this in a warming world, that taken individually, these natural disasters are not unusual. But the issue is that they are bigger, hotter, and more frequent, so that recently burned habitat doesn't always have the opportunity to regenerate before burning again. The article also heavily quotes former podcast guest Olivia Sanderfoot, who talks then about the impacts of wildfire smoke on birds who have a very sensitive and efficient respiratory system, which would presumably be impacted by particular matter from these fires. But the extent of that is, is unknown. There's just a lot of unknowns here. From a bird movement perspective, the prospect of birds changing behavior as a result of these fires is something that birders can, in fact, observe in real time. My colleague Greg Neese points out that red crossbills, a famously nomadic boreal species, are being seen in the Western Great Lakes in greater than normal numbers. There's speculation that the fires are driving this. It certainly seems plausible. The current heat dome in the Great Basin, while not directly related to fires, but is sort of of a similar ilk and likely contributes a little bit, might spin some Great Basin birds out too. We've already seen things like Plumbius vireo in North Carolina, Scots Oriole in Montana, Western Tanager in Nunavut, White-tailed Kite in Wisconsin, etc., etc. Of course, all of this stuff needs the benefit of hindsight, and I think we'll be talking about this again from a more informed space a few months from now. But perhaps it's a reminder that midsummer birding doesn't have to be pointless. There's stuff going on that birders can contribute to our understanding of, something to keep in mind in the weeks ahead. On the show this week, Alyssa Barty's story is one of reconnection with her indigenous roots through nature, birds, photography, 
and storytelling. She comes to the podcast to talk about all of that after this week's Redbirds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of July 2023. The monsoon season in the Southwest in Arizona and New Mexico has traditionally been a driver of great nature-watching opportunities in the region and, of course, exciting vagrants to the ABA area, and 2023 is no different. The unprecedented sightings of four individual yellow grosbeaks in southeast Arizona in the last month suggested that something really exciting was about to drop, and that happened this week with a well-photographed blue-black grassquit in Graham County, east of Tucson, which is a potential ABA area first record. Blue-black grassquit is well-known to birders with experience in the American tropics with a range that stretches from the Argentinian Pampas all the way north to western Mexico, 300 or so miles shy of the Mexico-U.S. border, which put it on the radar of many birders in the area. The only question is, unsurprisingly, provenance. The species' prevalence in the cage bird trade is unknown, as is much with regard to illicit bird trafficking, but it did show up at precisely the right time and place one might expect such a bird to be, so it has that going for it. The northern Atlantic is a real mess right now with regard to surface water temperature, and that is likely driving warm water species northward, including a red-footed booby found this week in Hancock County, Maine. The bird was wrecked on the beach, but did eventually make its way offshore under its own power. This is the second northern red-footed booby this year. Both represent first records for their states. Uh, It is following New Jersey's first back in May. And only a few days after the discovery of Pennsylvania's first limpkin, a broad-billed hummingbird was a one-stop wonder at a feeder in the Pittsburgh area this week. A first record and perhaps part of the phenomenon of western species driven eastward because of the heat, though western hummingbirds in the east is a well-known and probably unrelated pattern. Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and an ABA community. I've often noted here that humans have loved birds for as long as there have been humans. And while many of us in the birding world love birds for similar reasons, every birder bird watcher or bird enthusiast has their own path to this world, this interest, and one that frequently leads to a greater appreciation and love of the natural world kind of more generally. Uh, my guest, Alyssa Barty, has a unique take on that journey. Hers is a story of indigenous reconnection and revitalization through birds. She joins me from her home in Ontario. Welcome, Alyssa. Thank you so much for your time. Dono, thank you so much for having me. Of it's course. It's honor to be here. Yeah, it's it's great to have you. Um, can you talk a little bit about your personal story and how birds have have played a role in it? Yeah, so I have always loved nature, um, and I feel like that just goes hand in hand with who I am as an indigenous woman. Um, so I I'm a Cayuga or a Gayakahono woman. Um, my Ancestry is is mixed between indigenous roots and settler roots. I grew up having a real love for nature and having a lifestyle that was completely immersed in in nature and and um, on the land. And my upbringing allowed me to kind of celebrate all the different pieces of who I was. But unfortunately, I didn't grow up in my community because of that. Very disconnected from who I was as an indigenous person. That being said, you know, my parents were wonderful and and all pieces were celebrated, but 
um, without that link to community, you find yourself kind of lost. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I, I met my husband in, in 2014. And he at that point, um, kind of celebrated who I was as an Indigenous uh, woman. And, and because he is um, Indigenous as well, he's Mohawk from Tandanaga Mohawk Territory. And he celebrated that. And he he pointed out how important it was for me to begin the work to do the reconnection and and to to build that bridge back to community. But does having an interest in nature sort of make that journey easier or more interesting? I'm sure that your background, even though it wasn't specifically in, in the Indigenous community, was one that was sort of running parallel to a lot of that. Yeah, I think so. It definitely it definitely helps because there are so many similarities and and connections to nature as Ungwe Honwe people. Um, you know, it's it's I really draw from from the connection and that living in reciprocity with the land and mm-hmm. and living in harmony with the land and there's just too many things in nature that that make sense from a cultural perspective. Mm-hmm. Um that you know, making that link and making that connection has has been hugely helpful in in myself reconnecting, and that's honestly where I find the greatest peace and and the greatest sense of place is is within nature because it all just makes perfect sense. When you were interested in nature as a child, were birds a central part of that, or were they just kind of one aspect of a generalized nature interest? Um. Yeah. No, I kind of dismissed birds for a lot. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> my <it> upbringing, <laughs> as I think a lot of people do. Um, and it's so unfortunate because when you do slow down and you notice, and you notice that, um, you know, the beauty that exists out there, it's it's incredible. And so, yeah. I mean, I could growing up, I could tell a blue jay from a chickadee, mm-hmm. um, but I never knew the warblers or yeah. flycatchers or you know even the hawks and. And um, it wasn't until I, I, I got into birding first um, because my family on my mom's side got into birding and <laughs> we all did a big year. And of course, the competitive. Oh, all right. Yeah. And hardcore right that, off the bat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So at that point, I was I was just starting to learn to take pictures. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Uh-huh. Birds are amazing. Um, I love this. And then as I began to do the work um, to reconnection, I I. Uh, made friends with a counselor and um, a knowledge keeper who also really loved the birds. Mm-hmm. And we would talk about the birds that were coming to our feeders. And and um, one of the biggest things he taught me was like, start your day with the birds, go outside and, and just listen and just see who's out there. And um, he told me that, you know, the birds are singing their song of gratitude every morning when they wake up. And if you start your day with that that sense of gratitude, the way the birds do, um, regardless of if it's the dead of winter or if it's, you know, peak springtime migration, there's probably always going to be a bird out there, yeah. whether it's oh, a cardinal sure. or a chickadee. And, and um, you know, starting your day with that same sense of gratitude, regardless of, of what you're experiencing in your life um, is, is really awesome. So it's tough. I have two young kids and yeah, no, I hear you. it's not a lot of quiet time in my life. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I try to just, I mean, even right now I can hear a song sparrow over my back shoulder singing, nice. singing their little song. And, and yeah, it's, it's a pretty awesome um, way to live your life in parallel with nature. As you became more 
yeah, in, engaged with uh, indigenous culture in the community. Is there a particular group of bird in some of the stories that are told that make for interesting stories? Um, I think I think you can draw things from a lot of different birds. Obviously, um, the most famous would be the eagle. I think mm-hmm. in a lot of different nations, the eagle symbolizes the creator or the bird that flies the highest to the spirit world. Um, an eagle feather has tremendous significance to many nations and um so the eagle of course is is very predominant but um i think of the story of the hermit thrush which i told during my biggest week presentation and and the hermit thrush teaches us things like humility and and honesty and it kind of tells of the story of how the hermit thrush came to be and why he's so shy now but Mm -hmm. also why his song is so beautiful Uh, other birds you know they teach us things like the um, value of family and and working hard um, for your family. So, for example, we just had a a mama robin try to make a, le- a nest in our wheel well um, over you know a couple of days. We worked so hard and so quickly. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. you know, as a mother, I can kind of draw on that and think like, man, she's she's hustling for her family too. And another example would be um, my daughter and I were out in the bush a couple of weeks ago and we stirred up a, a pair of toeys um, that must have had a nest nearby and, and they were putting on quite a show. They weren't very happy that we were there. <laughs> and again, it, 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 you, can, you can draw lessons from that, you know, fight for what, what you love, fight for what's important to you, whether it's, you know, a nest or your values or who you are as a person. Um, I think regardless of if you're indigenous or a settler, there's there's lessons out there if you just take the time to slow down and learn. I don't mean to pitch on the spot, but w- would you tell the the hermit thrush story? I w- I will. I actually yeah. have it here. Um, it's it's kind of a version that I uh, came up with myself. Um, mm-hmm. We like to share it with my kids, and my kids actually ask me as I'm driving in the car to to say it to them. Um, <laughs> So I, I'm going to just recite the way I know it. Please. Um, it's, uh, so it's this, the Haudenosaunee story of the hermit thrush. And the story happened a long, long time ago when only the birds had their beautiful feathers. But the world was pretty silent. Only the people in the, in the villages had, had songs and music. And every day, their songs, the songs of the people would drift over the treetops and the forest floor along with the smoke of their their campfires when they would sing and when they would drum all of creation especially the birds would stop and listen and as far as the sound could travel everyone would marvel at at music and one day the creator or the great spirit was in the woods walking among all of creation and the birds and he noticed that all of the birds were sitting perched on treetops and limbs and on the forest floor. And it seemed as if they too were pausing to listen to the music. And so the creator called all the birds to a great council. And he asked them if they would be interested in having a song as well, just as the people did, just as they enjoyed hearing from the people. And with a great flurry and flapping of wings and hopping up and down, they all answered, yes, yes, please. And so the creator came up with a plan and he said, tomorrow morning at sunrise, 
I want you to take flight into the sky and I want you to fly as high as you can. And when your wings can take you no further, that's when you're going to find your song. The bird that can find the fly the most high is going to be one that's given the most beautiful song of all. And so that next morning, right before daybreak, all the birds were gathered together. And they were all very excited and, and ready to receive their gift. And they were, they were talking to each other and competing with each other. And everyone was excited except one little bird, and that was the thrush. And Thrush looked at all the other birds and thought to himself, I'm, I will never win this. How can I compete with all these other birds? How can I compete with the hawk and the peregrine falcon? And um, he looked at Ogwex or Eagle, who was so mighty and strong and stern. And an idea came to his mind. So Ogwex was distracted amid all the flurry and all the excitement of the other birds and, and the excitement of, of starting this great race. And while Ogwex was distracted, Thresh jumped into the back of Eagle and snuggled in into those thick feathers. Ogwex, who was distracted, had no idea that Thresh had snuggled in and had intentions of hitching a ride. Meanwhile, the sun had begun to peek over the horizon and all at once, the birds took off into the sky in the race to find their songs. And up, up, up they flew towards the spirit world, towards finding their song. And the sky was filled with the sounds of flapping wings, all determined birds up there soaring upwards to find their song. So the first bird to tire and to get their song was the small hummingbird. And she found her tiny song, which is a very plain and simple chirp. It goes, wait, wait for me. The cowbird was next. Uh, and his song is kind of a simple chorus. It's like a lazy, drifty little song that he found as he was gliding back down to earth. And so it happened that the rest of the birds began to find their song. The warblers and the woodpeckers and the flycatchers, they would all find their songs as their, wing, as their wings could take them no further. And at this time, it was only the bigger birds, the stronger birds that were left, the hawk and the loon, owl, raven, falcon. But leading the pack was the strongest of them all, the mighty Ogwex. The birds carried on for a whole day and a whole night until Ogwex was the only one left. When the sun had sunk down in the west and began to rise again in the east, Ogwex looked over his shoulder and saw no other birds. He then decided at this time he had outflown all the other birds and it was safe to return home. The change in direction jostled awake Thrush, who all this time had been snuggled up sleeping on Eagle's back. From his spot on Eagle's back, Thrush leapt off and headed towards the heavens. Ogwex was just too tired at this point and, and too drained to put up any protest, and he glared at Thrush as Thrush flew upward and Eagle flew downwards. And so Thrush continued upwards, 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 upwards towards what he saw to be a hole in the sky. And it was here he entered into the spirit world or the sky world. And for being the bird that could fly the highest, he received and was rewarded with the most beautiful song. And anyone who knows the song of the hermit Thrush knows it to be very ethereal. Mm -hmm. And it's a it's a song that that comes from the spirit world. It it stirs the spirit and it hearkens the heart of 
of those who hear it. When Thrush had spent enough time in the spirit world, he, it was time for him to come down to earth. And at this time, he was so excited to share this beautiful song with all his birdkin. However, as he drifted back down to earth, his pride began to change into something else. Nearing the ground and looking at all the other birds staring up at him, awaiting his return, he began to feel embarrassed. He saw hummingbird and cowbird, the loon, the hawk, the raven, and there in the center of the birds was Ogwex, and they were all glaring up at him <laughs> for taking the song that rightfully belonged to the eagle. Such shame that little bird felt and such embarrassment for cheating. All the birds knew what he had done. And there was absolutely no celebration. Thrush landed into a silent circle of birds. And then he retreated into the deepest, darkest part of the woods where no one could see him and, and see his shame. He was in great fear of Ogwex. And Thrush decided that there he would become a hermit where he could <laughs> stay away from, from Ogwex for wanting to get even with him. However, the song that Thrush has is still so beautiful that sometimes he just can't contain it and he lets it out. And when he does let it out, it's the song of the spirit world. And, and it's just so beautiful. So we call it the song of the spirit world and the song of a hermit. The hermit knows the goodness of a song and shares it from his place of hiding. And when you hear the song, the song of the spirit world is so beautiful. You know, it just can't be contained. Um, it brings the light of the spirit world from the deepest, darkest parts of the forest. What a story. <laughs> it's a long one. It's a long one, but it's so good. I love it because like how many of us have not stood somewhere in the woods and listened to the song of a hermit thrush or any of those thrushes and mm -hmm. just been amazed by it, mm -hmm. moved by it. And it's fascinating to me to know that people have been doing that for millennia that same sort of amazement at the at the sound the sound that's coming from these deep dark tangled places in the woods and it's oh I, I love it I love that yeah yeah it's pretty cool and you know there's so there's so many other stories that involve the birds there's the story of how the birds got the feathers but mm -hmm. obviously we'd be another 10 minutes into that <laughs> um but yeah it's it's just so cool and and I like the the thought of, you know, maybe things came to be um, a little bit differently than how it's read yeah. in, in the science books. And yeah. we don't necessarily know if it's, if it's true or if it's, if, um, you know, it, it's the story just to teach us a lesson, but yeah. regardless, um, it's pretty cool. And like you said, who hasn't stood up at the edge of that forest and felt that in their hearts? Yeah, for sure. When, when you talk with people from different different nations and different parts of the continent do you find story traditions that are are shared or similar across you know this wide swath of people um no not really um i think the one commonality is of course the eagle yeah, yeah. um makes sense it's found from coast to coast so. yeah but in, in more of a local sense there are some similarities, for example, um, you know, maybe here in Ontario, some of the Haudenosaunee words and, you know, Anishinaabe words, maybe they would, um, they wouldn't sound alike in the language, mm -hmm. but they might mimic the sound of, of that a bird would make. Um, so chichirere 
in Mohawk. I'm not sure what the Anishinaabe word is, but um, sometimes it sounds like the 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 sound that the bird makes. So yeah. there are are some similarities that way. Um, but I think cultures and and traditions and nations are are as different as as the different birds that exist all over the continent. Mm-hmm. And you know that's one thing I really like to do is when I do travel and I, I enjoy traveling is is making sure that I take home some of the local bird knowledge or nature knowledge um, from the from the varying um, nations that, that and whose land we're on, whose land we're visiting, so that you know we can take a little bit of something home with us um, from the indigenous communities we're visiting. Yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioned the names too because uh, I've found that. You know, there there is a wide variety of different names for for birds across the continent. But one of the things that is really connected, the sort of connective tissue of a lot of them, there's so many of those names, as you mentioned, are are onomatopoetic. Are they're they're you know with the the sound of the bird makes. You mentioned the chickadee sound. Could you what was that again? Chickchirere. Chickchirere. Uh, yeah, and then uh, I know um, down where I live, it's the the land of the, the Cherokee, the Western band of the Cherokee, and uh, chickadee here is Sikili. So it's like just it's the sound of the, that the bird is making. Um, yeah. So a lot of these birds that are making a lot of noises, there's a lot of kind of interesting names for them that are at least very similar, coming from a different place, a different language tradition, but are similar across the way because they're they refer to the bird, the sound that the bird is making. Do you keep <laughs> track of bird names wherever you go? Yes and no. Um, it's hard, and when when you do travel, it it, it can be. Um, difficult to it's find hundreds and hundreds of languages right? yeah <laughs> um but i did just go to the east coast and i don't have it written down but i i did purposely look up um this the Mi'kmaq word for eagle uh-huh. um so that you know i could take that back and yeah and getting a little book about Mi'kmaq animals that were in the language and there's so much knowledge out there so sometimes it can be overwhelming when you do yeah, travel somewhere sure. <laughs> and, you know, it's nice to bring that home with you at least when yeah. you're paying a visit to someone else's territory. You're a talented photographer in addition to to being a naturalist. Um, how does your your background inform the way that you approach bird photography? Is it something that you're thinking of when you're setting up a shot or or thinking about the photograph that you want to get? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, taking a picture of someone in a forest to me is not just taking a picture of someone standing among the trees. Mm-hmm. It's that sense of interconnectedness that I try to capture. Um, I'm of the belief that everything in this earth has a spirit and it might not be the same spirit that we have in our bodies or in, in our hearts, but these are our kin. And, you know, a pine tree has a story just as much as we do. So I try to focus on, you know, what stories what stories come from the landscape that are around us? So Hmm. what stories does that pine tree hold or what stories does that chickadee have um, that I'm taking a picture of? And I try to kind of weave that in. Yeah. It makes sense that in a world where oral tradition matters so much that sort of that visual storytelling would be a big part of that as well. Mm -hmm. Huge. What can interested birders do to learn more about indigenous relationships with birds or to think about that when they're out birding? I I definitely think that using the resources that are available online to find out about whose territory you're on, Mm -hmm. um, if travel is something that you're doing as a birder, then I think it's especially important to pull up the native land uh, app on your phone um, or online to, to know who's, whose traditional territory you're visiting and, and who have been the, the, the past 
and present caretakers of of the land that you're you're birding on. Um, you know, it's it's not it's not hard to find a little piece of information to take home with you as you're birding. Even um, you know, I went to California in the fall, and I was I was searching desperately to ha- trying to find some some local indigenous. Um, knowledge on on birds based on on whose territory I was on and um I did find some knowledge and I don't remember it off the top of my head but I know I did purposely leave with some handmade beadwork quail earrings from mm-hmm. oh, cool. um, an artisan and so I mean it, it could be something like that it could be taking a piece of knowledge home with you or you know finding a local artist who's painted a beautiful picture of a bird or maybe a storybook on the local animals that are um, in the language. So there's, it's, it's all, um, how much work you want to put into it, I think. Mm -hmm. And I, but I think it really stems from just knowing that there are original caretakers of the land and, and paying respect to that. Um, I think within birding, there's a, there's a big sense of ownership of birding hotspots and, Mm -hmm. and lands. And sometimes the birding community can be really hard to, to, to join. And, you know, you'll meet someone who will say, oh, I've been birding here since, you know, 1978. And, <laughs> you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, my family's been picking leeks here since time immemorial. So like, and it's not yeah. that it's a competition. I, I firmly believe that we can share the land. But, you know, I think just asking people to to open their mind up a little bit that this land has probably belonged to the birds more than anyone. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We do have a tendency to be a little myopic on that sort of thing about, yeah. uh, you know, hotspots have only existed to the extent that they've been useful to us and things <laughs> of that nature. It is it is important and I think really gratifying to to think about, you know, the way this land has been for however long, <laughs> millennia, you know, mm-hmm. thousands of years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and who has been on it and how it's been used and how it's been appreciate it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alyssa Barty is a photographer and a storyteller and um, speaker, uh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, Alyssa, where can people find your work? Probably Instagram as a visual source would be the best place to go. I mm-hmm. can be found at, at Alyssa Barty. Okay. Um, my website, AlyssaBartyPhotography.com. Um, I'm on Facebook and the new threads. I'm there too. Oh, right so, on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yes. Uh, or just shoot me an old fashioned email um, if you right. want to connect to uh, com. Absolutely. I'll have the link to all that in the uh, in the show notes. Please check that out. Alyssa, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your perspective. Uh, I really appreciate it. And um, thanks again. Thank you, Nyawa, for having me. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is, as always, to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including our fantastic magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and Beauty of Books. You can find out how to do that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Alyssa Mayo and family of Albuquerque, New Mexico, Dave Robertson of Canandaigua, New York, Wendy Scott of Hazlitt, Michigan. I apologize for this one. 
Alexandra Scheigel and family of Ottawa, Kansas, and Garrett Yachlin of Washington, D.C., all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much, and welcome to the ABA. Another thing you can do to help the podcast that doesn't cost a dime is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. Your ratings help get us in front of people, and we certainly appreciate that. Technical production is by John Lowry, who knows that the Wisconsin Flame Color Tanager in retrospect should have been a warning sign in hopes that his recent rock ptarmigan sighting isn't foreshadowing as some sort of deep impact situation. Social media is by Maggie Fitzgibbon, who is a big fan of fire-dependent species, but thinks it's a shame that neither Smokey Brown nor Ashy Woodpecker exhibit this behavior. Additional help comes from Greg Neves, who thinks that the return of Blackburnian warblers this fall is a little bit of poor taste this year. Can you do something about that? You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. A quick check in eBird lists no fewer than six species of hummingbirds with derivations of flame, fire or fiery in their names, but zero, zero having to do with water or flame retardant, though I guess snowcap is kind of close. Questions, comments, come to podcast at eba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. See you next week.